Hello, and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today we have a special interview recorded by Fred Schenkelberg in January 2016 at the Rams Conference in Orlando, Florida. Fred's guest was Dr. Lance Fiandella. Dr. Fiandella is an assistant professor at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. He received his PhD in 2012 in computer science and engineering from the University of Connecticut. Dr. Fiandella's research interests include the reliability and risk assessment of software, systems, and networks. He has supervised four master's theses, and he is the advisor of four PhD students. Fred talked with Dr. Fiandella about his collaborations with industry on risk management issues. Let's join Fred's interview with Dr. Lance Fiandella. So welcome to Dare to Know. This is Fred Shankleberg and sitting down with Lance Fiandella. I'm sorry, I stumbled on that. I even tried it a couple of times. But. Uh, now, we're at, at the Rams conference, and you probably are going to pick up some of the background stuff that's going on, because there's a lot of people here who are talking about reliability. And some of them, I, I suspect quite a few, came in part to see your tutorial that you do. We, well, we did have quite an audience today. So it was a session, I would say, maybe 50 attendees or so okay. in the software reliability modeling tutorial. Software reliability. And I thought you had math in there at one point. Well, there was inter it was the formal title was Introduction to Mathematical Software Reliability Models. Okay. But again, it intended to be a basic introduction. You know, I intentionally provide the as you would see in a traditional mathematics textbook. Mm -hmm. They have appendices with the laws of algebra you, or exponents you might need to know. So we, we, we went through that because I wanted to dispel the belief that this is complicated to get into. Right. So right. starting from rules of differentiation and laws of exponents and logarithms, really calculus one and two is all you need to get started mm -hmm. understanding the basic models and going from there into a review of some of the concepts of estimation, so given some event time data or in, or in the context of reliability, failure time data, how do we find a curve of best fit for a model in a mathematical sense? So, All right. so some of that's just straight regression analysis of the different times of ways of going at it. You're dealing with a software system, so it's time to a defect found or a bug right. found. Right. Fault this. exposure. Fault exposure like that. It wasn't that long ago people didn't believe software had reliability okay. concepts or stuff. So th there's a popular argument that goes around, and I, I, I'll repeat one form of it, which is software is deterministic. If you give it an input, or it will produce the same output no matter what. That's right. So Until you therefore, fire Microsoft you're right. the operating system. But the, the idea <laughs> being that it's either works or it doesn't, and once you fix it, it's fixed forever. Therefore, it is this binary state, zero or one, one being reliable, zero being unreliable. Right. The, the, I guess the oversimplification there is that when you talk about, say, the operational profile of a software, which can be everything from the inputs, including configuration files, the sensor data that's reading something in and then feeding it to software, right. there is randomness in the time to exercising the code where the fault resides. So right, right. that oversimplification tends to disregard that these, uh, the randomness in the environment 
and configuration can in, dr drive the times to the first time to discover a fault right. that would then send the engineers back to the drawing board to try to do fault isolation and removal. Okay, so we're gathering this event data or failure type data, and then then you were talking about that the, your tutorial goes yeah. after these models, yeah. and so. And I, I've done some work in the software world and, and things like defect density and, and, and uh, it's a Duane plots or models and things like that. Is it that kind of thing or is it a, it's been a while since I've dove into that area at all. So I might have to sign up for your class or actually attend no, no. your tutorial. <laughs> all right. Well, in any case. Um, well, I mean, is, am I in the right track? Well, yeah. why, would, so, why would I as a, a reliability engineer well, 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 it's not what I would I again with my the the review that I give at the beginning of the tutorial. I, you know, try to emphasize that even though software is this different entity, it fails in a different way. It doesn't have you know you can't kick it the same way. You can kick hardware, which has a, a set of reliability models. There is some similarities in the mathematics. So right. you know you'll have these models based on uh, say. It, well, you'll have the event time data, but then how do you characterize it? One popular class would be these non-homogeneous Poisson process models, right. which are a time variable system. Right. They call yep. them yeah, right. So you see the NHPP models, but you know, I start very simply to say let's let's begin from what is you know we know what least squares estimation is to find that minimize distance between the the curve of best fit and the the data points to minimize those right. vertical distances, but instead looking at another method, the maximum likelihood method, where we talk about um, samples from a distribution and the probable you know what what are the numerical values of a pr the the parameters of a model that best characterize the data that would give us that quote curve of best fit. So we, right. we, we review very simple concepts from discrete probability and continuous probability, even okay. give an example in the context of say you know, flipping a coin a certain number of times and then right. from that inferring but showing that you can go through a calculus-based procedure, simple differential calculus, to derive algebraic equations that make intuitive sense as, right. say, for example, the number of uh, successes divided by the number of coin flips would tell you the uh, best Fair estimate of your probability of that coin coming up heads, and also the simple exponential distribution because one of the, what we call failure rate, or another group of researchers mm -hmm. would like to call hazard rate, right. um, there's a class of models where there's a discrete sequence of failures, but instead of them being what we call independent and identically distributed, where every single failure, like a hardware population where we might have a set of items on test, right. we're going to break a hundred of them or run them until they you know, wear out, we're talking about a piece of software that's being tested and as faults are removing, removed, the the, the rate of occurrence of failure should be decreasing on average. So instead... Not in every software team. Well, preferably. <laughs> preferably. And, 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 I, and, and certainly I can go through those cases too. And, and the, the reality is that processes really make things, the, the complexity of software these days certainly makes the, the classical models from decades ago harder to characterize everything. And right, there's certainly right. some good research going on in that direction. So but let's assume they're, they're doing a good job and they're fixing things and making right. improvements, but it's not testing 100 iterations 
it's testing one that keeps changing. Well, right, so there, there, there are these complexities to say, well, you know, I changed my software. Is it even the same physical or same, same logical item. object it was right. before I made that fix? Right. But, you know, we, we try to do the suspension of disbelief for the time being simply because we want to preserve mathematical tractability and trying to get away from those relative, some oversimplifying assumptions too quickly uh, may introduce issues that really don't resolve. For example, cursive dimensionality. Why do I need three parameters when two would suffice? Right, or right. some, when, when parameter two times parameter three's values could take any possible combination of values within the feasible range, does that third parameter really characterize something about that testing process or the, the rate of exposure of faults? So we try to avoid that in statistics we call the curse of dimensionality That's right. and preserve simplicity. Right, so right. whether it's a two-parameter model, um, but these, uh, these failure or hazard rate models, instead of simply saying the 100 you know, iPods I'm going to drop on the ground, our iPads, and we do our, our we do our drop tests in our specialized unit. Instead, we're talking about software that has essentially a in, the the faults will have independent realizations, but they're not identical. That is, each time we remove a fault, the rate of occurrence of failure should decrease by some amount. Right. But that that rate is still exponential. So instead of having a product of IID or independent and identically distributed faults. We have these independent but non-identical faults where the sequence is decreasing. So the mathematics becomes a little bit more complicated, right, right, but it's just indexed i from one to a hundred lambda sub i. As a, so you still have your lambda e to the minus lambda t forms, but now those lambdas have an index i for the i fault, and right. the math goes through. And it really doesn't make it too much more complicated. Not really. When we were doing your logs and differentiation. Well, you, you also mentioned that you've got a, a package, basically, an open source uh, uh, set of tools, basically. And didn't you go into that much in the tutorial? Yes. Right. So we gave a demo. And you know, certainly, it's good to understand the underlying mathematics. You know, maybe the boss only wants to see a plot to right. say we're on track or we're in trouble. Right. Um, but it helps to know why, you know, those the underlying assumptions that are implicit within the mathematical formulations. It's it's important to know what is essentially baked into the equations. What right. what what are what are we implicitly assuming? And it's up to somebody to, you know, if they want to propose a m more general model, they have to remove those assumptions. So there's certainly value in learning the underlying mathematics to help make decisions wisely. But in this case, we've implemented a tool and populated with a, a set of five models. These were not; these were simple models that were popular, and you actually many of them were implemented in a previous tool, which is no longer supported. That was the Casri tool developed by Alan Nakora of Jet Propulsion Laboratory and uh, Michael Liu, who's now at City University of Hong Kong. So they had the Casri tool, mm -hmm. which I'm forgetting the, um, the spelled out version of the acronym. Right. But you know, actually. Alan, myself, we worked on the project uh, with some with support from the Navy to re-engineer the tool in a way that would, it's not the quote forever solution, but hopefully it will be around for long enough that people can make good use of it. That is, it's now, instead of being closed source, it's open source. That has certain implications. One is anybody from the international research community who has a model we have an open architecture. They can follow our contributor's guide standard and implement a model, test it against some data sets, 
verify that it's working, Rejected. produces the plots, and then plug it into our graphical user interface. So and you then get the structure for them to bring their formulas and al the, the, their algorithms basically to it. Right. And so it's all in R, from my understanding. That's right. And it was just the popular yes. research language now for statistics well, and others. My idea was, you know, one, keep it free. And so, therefore, try to implement it on top of a tool that's free. Right. Keep it open source, so implement it on a tool that's open source, so that it is truly free and open source, other than down to the operating system. You have to buy the computer, but the, right. the software, you're not paying licenses. We're not plugging a back end into a commercial tool that would charge a license. We right. want to get away from that right. because you know, that certainly limits the ability of those who are resource constrained from working with the tools. Well, it also encourages collaboration and sharing of more, more models, more details, more, That's you right. get more input in it rather than all being siloed around. That's Which is right. a big point of this conference and, you know, is to share ideas and do That's all right. that stuff. Right, so, you know, unlike many, we all may have proposed a model of some form or another because we said, hey, I saw that data set and it looked like it followed this curve. Right. L let me work it out and see if that, that model, do the math out and see how well it fits compared to the others. Really, my belief is that there's been a real divergence between the academic community and the practitioners who can benefit from some of their modeling. And right. what, I was, what, I'm, what I was hoping to see by developing this project was to create a kind of sandbox to promote collaborate, collaboration and communication. Okay. What I mean by that is I'm not out to promote any model. We put five models into the tool just to get it started. Right. None of those are my models. I simply want people to be able to add whatever model. I, I don't think I have the bandwidth so in some sense the open architecture is crowdsourcing the problem of going through 40 years of uh, the research literature if a new student is doing their master's project they can go find a paper and say oh here's this classical model from professor famous professor x in country y i'm going to do that for my project and then go implement it and get it go through the contributor guide process get do pass the validation test get it inserted into the tool, and then it's available for the user community to decide whether it's any good or not. Or so, it's I mean, useful or not, to me, helps, so yeah. Exactly, yeah, so my, my, my theory is it's an efficient market. It's a, it's a kind of matchmaking environment where right. let the users decide what's useful and not. And in the other direction, my goal is to let, let the folks from industry try it out, kick the tire, say good, no good, in between, and then come back to the researchers and say, you know, that partially addresses my problem but I also have this kind of related problem. Can you help me solve that? And right. maybe it's already solved in the research literature. Maybe it goes in the tool. Right, right. Maybe it goes into a complementary tool. So in essence, create that two-directional conversation mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. actually create a tool. I, I joke, I say, this tool is for the users, not for me, because many researchers will create a tool which advertises a collection of their own results oh, right. as opposed to something that's for everybody, right? Everybody can contribute their models, right. their measures of goodness of fit. And this would, in some ways, also promote standardization and repeatability of research. It's right. no longer, I have my model, that old model that anybody can beat because, you know, it's just, we know that the, the shape of the curve isn't so, you know, flexible. Right. And right. so, in other words, forcing a higher standard of quality when it comes to repeatability, mm -hmm. comparability, and to have that single shared platform for the international research community. That, that's really one of my goals, to okay. up the standards of research and start asking the practitioners, what do you really need from us? Right. So I got 
two follow-up questions. I mean, I know you talk about it in the tutorial, but where where can people find the model and the, and get involved with this new commu this community of these software models? Well, so you know, there's certain places where they're public. Obviously, the Rams proceedings is one place where they right. you've seen models proposed, but there's certain popular publications, the IEEE Transactions on Reliability has Well, that's where we can find the models. I'm thinking about your, the tool you're building. In yeah. that, uh, oh, you mean the actual, where, where can you get the tool? Right, right. Okay, so th there's, I make it available on my website, which is a, it's a third party site. So okay. it's a registered Google domain. And I'll, I'll get yeah. to the link yeah, from it, and we'll put it in the show notes. All right, sounds good. All right, I won't spell it out. Yeah, that's fine. It's, we, can, we can add the link right. but uh, it's, electronically it's, to the show absolutely. notes. Absolutely. And, but it's, um, it's a it's a package in R, so yes. it's being f familiar with R to some extent, mm -hmm. loading the package and stuff. And then I know the tutorial introduces some of the background and, and basics of that and demo of it. Uh, where, is there other material available to other than going to right. uh, uh, Dartmouth? I think that's where you're at, right? Go to Dartmouth and take your classes. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, certainly a, I'm hoping to get that short text written at some point, right. you know, but I'm still on tenure. We'll see how, how quickly that happens. <laughs> um, but you know, the website provides a set of resources. One is a web-based instance of the tool. Right. So you can go there. You don't have to download anything. It's just a web it's ready version. To run. Right? It's there. And not only that, there's a set of data sets taken from a very popular handbook of software reliability, which was edited by Michael Liu in the uh, 1995. Right. It's got some very famous data sets, which are prepared. It's in Excel format. You can So the input formats are fairly standard, uh, hopefully across organizations, either Excel spreadsheet or comma-separated variable right. files. So we give these data sets all in the form ready for input into the tool. So one, you don't need to download and install the tool if you just want to get started and learn. Right. Two, you don't have to go collect your own data. You have historical data sets you can play around with. And three, there's a user guide, which has a tutorial. It'll walk you through, click here, here's what you should see, here's how you interpret it. So that set of documents and resources is to just learn. Right. And right. then if you, for you know, it's, it's open source, meaning you have access to the code. You can go to the GitHub repository, you can download it. If your organization has concerns with security, so again, defense-related users might have concerns about information security, they can, they have the source code. Right, they, they can, can they can, they can go through information assurance procedures of their organization so that they can be confident that this is not, doesn't have any trapdoors. it That's is right. secure. So in that regard, by providing the source code, yes, we understand there's a little bit of extra overhead, but it's, again, attempting to serve communities. And again, even commercial proprietary wants to make sure. They might want to adapt it. Right. As I say, I want to give the research away because in doing so, my hope is to get more feedback about what are the real burning issues in industry as opposed to here's more models. I don't right. necessarily think that's what we need. That's right, and you mentioned that right at the start, is that gap between the academic and practical side and bridging that, making sure what you're doing is more practical. Mm -hmm. So in, in the campus and with your students, do you get much of the industry researchers to bring projects in or interact with that, or is this the tool and this idea one of the venues for doing that? Well, at this point, our primary visitor list it tends to be the local defense contractors. Okay. So they've come down, people supporting different branches of the armed services, Army, Navy, Air Force, who, 
you know, they might be former graduates of our program right. who are now working for the local defense contracting community. Certainly, you know, industry has expressed interest. They have a little bit more variety in terms of their processes right. and development, but certainly there's right. there's potential to collaborate there as well. Okay. Um, so, and there they just contact you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had folks come down, you know, I get phone calls. I've on occasion said, well, if you don't want to drive out here, it's, it's very scenic. Uh, but <laughs> if you would just like to have a phone conversation or we do some kind of screen sharing to walk you through, right. I think at some point if the volume becomes too high, we'll probably do some videos where, you know, the students will do a, here's, here's the screen the and walk shares, you through. Yeah. yeah, and so just give the video tutorial as opposed to the written document. That's right, that's right. Now, the way you describe the, this, this, the, the tool and the mathematics behind it, it's, it's not specifically, I mean, it's, you've written it for software packages and, mm -hmm. and defect tracking, and not defect tracking, but uh, uh, modeling of future defects, mm -hmm. defect rates, uh, defect density, I think is the common term. Um, but it certainly sounds like it would work for repairable systems. So there, there's certainly some relationships, but many of the uh, those NHPP, the non-homogeneous Poisson process models, typically have a model form that assumes that there's a certain finite number of faults and then a distribution on the discovery time. Right. So it's essentially a scaled cumulative distribution function. So yeah, and I've heard that analogy a number of times, and, and but that's... That's a, a, obviously a simplification. Right. But, but at the same time, it gives, it ultimately, the models, what, what are the, I think the underlying question that anybody wants to ask is, what am I going to, what can I use this model for? Right. So like, what, before well, I even bother question, learning yeah. <laughs> what I'm, before I try to study all this and figure it out, right. what questions will enable me to answer? So with the, you know, the failure rate or hazard rate models, as they're termed, we typically can ask simple questions like, how much additional testing time would be required to achieve a desired failure rate or intensity. Right. Meaning, you know, if I have a schedule to stick to and I can see that, you know, I'm going to require so many additional weeks or months of testing, I might know I'm either on track or I'm behind schedule. So right, right. certainly knowing the projection, projecting whether or not I'm going to make my scheduled uh, deadlines is certainly one. Others would be you know, how many faults are, were latent in the software right. and how many would be remaining. If I couple that with, say, only measuring certain ones of a higher criticality than a, th a given threshold, I know how many severity level one or twos I've got in there and we can, we can obviously manually filter the data based on severity or roll up just the ones and the twos and mm -hmm. disregards the three, fours and fives if those are lower severity right, right. just to know how are we doing our, and within certain processes you have to get to zero on the most severe before you can, you know, somebody's going to say okay let's, Ready you know, let's look, exactly, <laughs> right? And um, to be, so to be able to answer those kinds of questions provides guidance to say, are we doing enough? Are, of course, you need to be designing tests that are representative of what you want your system to do. Right, Remember, right. you know, reliability models are a mathematical approximation of reality. Those, many times, the software engineering community, I'm a computer scientist by training, so I, can okay. I have an appreciation of this, that, you know, the software engineers, we, we went into programming because we didn't, there was something about math that drove us to programming. You know, it, 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 it worked, it clicked when you, when you were successful, it was successful, it could be, you know, it's like electroshock therapy at times, but it, it, when it works, it works, when it fails, you get a good negative feedback to say that's not how you do it correctly. Right. But right. understanding the value of both the programming and the mathematics to use as a 
benchmark. You know, it's, in, in isolation, reliability modeling is not the answer. You need to concern yourself with the functional requirements. Is the, does the software do what it was, it's going to be designed that's to do? Right, that's it, right. It, yeah, be, until I check all the boxes, say yes, function one, function two, whatever I'm, where we're developing for the customer, is working. How can I say testing is done? And the test should be representative of what it needs to do or the usage profile. And certainly there's going to be some uncertainty in that. But to couple both the common sense programming, yeah, we need to make it do this, with the, the mathematics of here's how often it failed to say, hey, we're getting better. You know, at least it's less bad than it was before. Right, and right. feel like we're making progress as opposed to going in the wrong direction, having okay. reliability growth, not deterioration. Which I think we both have witnessed a few But times. it's a reality with such complexity in software testing. Right. You have many systems that are so large, you're integrating in layers. You might have block one tested, and then you're testing block two. Right. After. But block two has been added to block one. Now, in that first stage of testing with just block one, you're exposing faults within block one's code only. Right. But block two now interacts with block one. So you're exposing faults from block Two, two and you're one. also exposing faults in block one and faults that interact but right. across those boundaries that are now being connected. That's right. So this notion of integration testing and layering or block testing of very complex software systems is introducing this kind of, dis not discontinuities, but the kinks in the curves that lead to these more, more complex models, what they call change point models, right. where you might have what looks like a stock market recovery. You have the up one strong <laughs> up curve and a one that's a little bit weaker and, and a third a that's... correction. Yeah, and things like, well, hopefully not <laughs> no, that. Not too many corrections. But the, the notion that, you know, as you're applying the tests, you're exposing faults, and, but then you're adding code. So there's, as I said, um, some more complex models that would hopefully characterize these more complex software testing and integration procedures that you see with the, the modern systems. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up here and leave it, a note to, the, to the, the listeners. If you're coming to RAMS, and some, the way you described it, Lance, is the, it's building on the foundational pieces so you get the understanding. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not enough just to have a calculator, a fancy calculator, to crank out a number for you or to grab whatever model, but and use it with intelligence and understanding. And I think that's what you're introducing and talking about in the, in the tutorial. Is that fair? Right. And, you know, it's a conversation between all the stakeholders, and not just software engineers, customers, and everybody else. Right. Well, all the best to you with the, the software and the tool and the package and building that community. I'm going to have to touch base with you regularly and see how that's going and see how I can support you with all that. So Absolutely. Thank great. you. Well, thank you very much, Lance. Right. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, Fred. Yeah.